So, as I said earlier, today is our second Sunday of listening to the book of Revelation. And as we just heard, John is on the island of Patmos. Patmos is located about 35 miles off of the southwestern coast of Turkey. If you look it up, the pictures are actually beautiful, just gorgeous. And I laugh because when you look up places like this now, the Internet quickly gives you uh, travel recommendations for these places. And uh, it said the best time to visit is in July or next week, if you live in Virginia, would also be very good. We know that John is not on vacation. He's here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What this probably means is that the authorities have put John there. They have not yet resorted to outright killing of the leadership of this group of Christians. So they put him there in exile as a punishment for his fearless teaching and to try to stop his work from having any further effect. But, and this is fascinating, the result has been the exact opposite from what they intended. Exile has given John time to pray, to reflect, and now to receive the most explosive vision of God's power and love that the world has known. Let's take a minute to notice this point that we could easily rush past. The authorities have tried to silence John on a personal level. Once again, one of God's servants has been allowed to experience mistreatment and loss through forced isolation. But once again, God is overcoming this. He is wasting nothing. God wastes nothing in our lives. He uses everything, even suffering and pain, to reveal himself to his people and to expand his kingdom. John receives the most powerful revelation of God ever known while in his own pit of personal isolation and mistreatment. There's something for all of us here about the surprising way God can work in and through our pain. As John reintroduces himself in this letter, he tells his brothers and sisters that he is their partner in three things, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. And endurance is a key word in this list. Does anyone want to guess how many times this word shows up in the book of Revelation? Seven. If Jesus is always the right answer when you're in Sunday school, seven is the right answer when you're studying the book of Revelation. You can almost always count on it. Enduring life's pains in the way of Jesus is a key to true and abiding life, to becoming a true human being, the person God made you and I to be. This is often the unexpected way God reveals himself to us and through us in the world. But how do we do this? Now, remember, this is what Revelation is for. Revelation is written to help a group of people who are about to encounter the hardest times of their lives. These times could very well mean their death. 
And what it gives them, what revelation gives them is a vision of Jesus Christ to capture their imagination, to sustain their attention and to enable them to endure. Whether we realize it or not, this is what all of us need. We need a vision of Jesus that enables us to remain on the way with him when temptations and doubt seek to pull us away. So this passage is the first of several visions of Christ in this book. So John is there on the island of Patmos, and he is in the spirit on the Lord's day, which means he is in worship just like us. He's most likely gathered with other Christians on the island. And while in worship, which, by the way, is the primary place that God does speak while he's there, John hears a voice. The voice, John says, was like a trumpet. Now, why a trumpet? In the Old Testament, the trumpet signals God's descension onto Mount Sinai to meet with Moses. And it was also the call of the Israelites to worship at the tabernacle. Now, here it signals an ascension. John is ascending to the heavenly presence of Christ in worship. He is being given this vision. So John hears the voice tell him to write what he sees in a book and to send it to the seven churches. And these churches are mentioned. Now, remember that the number seven here again is a number for wholeness and completion. And so even while these books are rooted in a historical context, rooted in the reality of these seven churches in this time, these seven churches represent the church of every age and place. And so while these are real letters for real churches, these letters are also for us who represent the church in our own day. Now, the first thing John sees when he turns to see the voice is lampstands. He sees these lampstands, which in the Jewish world would have indicated a temple. And not only a temple, but the holy place. We're going to return to this later. The second thing he sees standing in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of this temple, is Jesus. Now we know that it's Jesus because when John falls to his feet as though dead, Jesus raises him up. He resurrects him and tells him, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. There are many things that we could say about this vision. But I want to be careful because this vision functions a lot like a beautiful painting, a master painting. This vision is meant to be meditated on, gazed on, not merely talked about its multi-layered dimensions of meaning and power are meant to be uncovered little by little through repeated encounters with it so donna kachka she did this lamb for us and she she's from stanton she she delivered it here and i remember her unwrapping it and i was just you know captured by it, it it's beautiful isn't it But then as Donna started talking about it a little bit, 
there were other layers of meaning that I had not noticed. So, for instance, the snake that is at the front right leg of the lamb wrapped around it. Do you see it there? This layer of meaning adds something to the whole picture. This is the lamb who is victorious, who has conquered the snake. But then there's also the red that frames the lamb. He has conquered through the blood. You see, these layers of meaning add something to the whole. And this is the way this vision works. You slowly notice more layers that add to the overall image. Each layer adds power and evokes something in us. So, for instance, here is one layer. Here is one angle from which to meditate on this vision. As Jesus stands in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the temple, Jesus is a priest. He is the priest. His robe is like that of the priests of Aaron in the Old Testament. This is what John sees, a white robe with a golden sash around it. This is, these are priestly robes. The whiteness of his hair, the brightness of his eyes, these things indicate his own purity. But beyond that, when we hear that his hair is white, like white wool, like snow, it says, we should be reminded of what the scriptures say in Isaiah, that even though our sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool, like his hair. Such forgiveness of sins is priestly work. As we learn at the end of the vision, the lampstands that stand for the temple are actually the churches. And Jesus is standing in the midst of them, isn't he? So I want you to try to picture this and remember artistic work like this. Visions are not always logically qualified. So they're they're meant to stretch our imagination on some level. So Jesus's feet are placed in the midst of the churches, which are real churches on earth, right? His feet then are on earth, but his eyes, did you notice the descriptions? His eyes are the sun. And within his hand are stars. So Jesus's body, if you think about it, stretches from heaven with the sun and the stars all the way down to the earth where these churches live. This vision is revealing Jesus as the priest who bridges heaven and earth. The true priest. Now, it's among these churches that Jesus works as priests, doing what a priest does, which is bringing people to God. Jesus has offered sacrifices to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. He has purified us and made us holy, and he continues to purify us with his word, which in the vision, his word is a sword, a sword that pierces and cuts away the things that are false. And he purifies not only with his word, the sword, but also with his eyes. Jesus's eyes are flames of fire. So Christ doesn't merely look at us. When he looks at us, he looks into us. He pierces us and he seeks to bring his cleansing power within us. 
with his word, which is a sword, and his eyes that are fire. Now, try to look at Jesus for a moment in your mind's eye. His robe, his perfectly white hair, his eyes that are looking deep within you, lighting up the darkness that's inside of you that you have tried to hide away. He sees it. He sees all of it. His face, it's as bright as the sun, and his words pierce to cut away your sin. This is your priest. This is the one who offers to cleanse you of your sin. He gazes at you with his fiery eyes and speaks with his mouth sword to shape you into his image. Now, of course, this is terrifying on one level, isn't it? But his aim is to bring you to God. This is one powerful layer of the vision. Jesus is our holy high priest, and we are therefore his temple, his dwelling place. There are additional layers to it. So composed of a voice like water. Did you hear that? His voice was like a waterfall. You can't ignore it. It's so powerful. Composed of a voice that's like water, hair that's like snow and wool, and eyes of fire. Christ is made up of all the elements of creation. He is the cosmic man, the sovereign over the earth. So in the ancient world, there were seven known planets or unfixed stars. And the movements of these planets uh, among the constellations and in relationship to the sun and the moon, this was the fundamental stuff of astrology in the ancient world. The influence of astrology permeated all the popular uh, religions there. And people assumed that these matters controlled your destiny. But in this vision... Christ holds the seven stars in his right hand, which is to say they are completely under his control. He dictates times and places, seasons. He dictates the events of your life, your future. Now, the sword functions on this layer, too. Christ is not going to have to war against his enemies in the same way of all kings because the sword of his mouth will defeat them. Eventually, all will bow at his word. This is the choice that all people have to face. We can bow at the feet of Jesus voluntarily in worship, or we can submit to him involuntarily when he subdues us with his word. Either way, all knees will bow before him. Jesus' feet composed of bronze, which does not rust, means that Christ is the eternal king and his reign will not end. So here are two layers to the vision. Christ is our priest. And two, he is our sovereign. But there's another layer that's easy to miss. It's subtle, like the snake here in Donna's lamb. But once you see this layer, its subtlety shapes the way you see everything else about the vision. So the way John describes Jesus echoes the book of Song of Solomon. Both John and the lovers in Song of Solomon describe hair, eyes, and other facial features in 
great detail. Both describe the feet of the lover, the male, as having the strength of metal. They even follow a similar order in the way that they detail their characteristics. So as in the song, John begins with Jesus's head and hair. He moves to his eyes, down to his feet, and then back up to his hand, his mouth, and his face. Who else describes and praises the appearance of another with nearly every detail from head to toe except a lover describing another. Who else does this? Zoe was clever enough this week to ask me if she should ask Katie to read the Song of Solomon passage to you this morning. I mean, who needs enemies when you have friends like that? Who would... Thankfully, Chris was able to benefit from his wife detailing these traits of him. So you're welcome, Chris. This could seem out of place were it not for this. We already know that Jesus is a bridegroom seeking a bride. We already know this. In John's gospel, Jesus started his ministry at a wedding where they ran out of wine. Now, this is crucial. It is the groom's job to make sure this doesn't happen. That groom was in trouble. Jesus steps in. He saves the day, especially for the groom, by providing an abundance of wine. But as Jesus does this, He also reveals himself as a groom with no bride. Now, Jesus then immediately after this in the gospel of John, he meets a woman. It's a woman who has been searching for a husband. She's moved through man after man, searching for a man who will satisfy her. And she is not satisfied until she meets Jesus. And he tells her every single thing she's ever done. Again, Jesus reveals himself as a groom. But even at that point, the bride has not been fully unveiled. Revelation unveils the bride for the first time. The bride is us. The bride is the church. Here in this passage, this vision, Jesus is being unveiled as a lover. And through John, Jesus is going to send seven love letters to his bride, his church. Now, if you know anything about the contents of these letters that we're going to read next week, they aren't always the most endearing love letters. I have this against you, Jesus tells one church. Repent, I will cast you on a bed of sickness. You are neither hot nor cold, and I will spew you out of my mouth, he says to others. Is this how a lover speaks to his bride? Well, I'd be careful. Why does Jesus say such things? Well, these are his own words. Those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. Jesus rebukes lukewarmness because he seeks a passionate bride to reciprocate his own love. He refuses to share his bride with lesser lovers. He is jealous for us. So he will speak firmly. And he will even pierce us in his love. 
Jesus's harsh words actually go to prove the point even more. He is a lover. And we are the bride he seeks. Now, having seen this layer of the vision, we have to incorporate it with all the other layers. Jesus is the priest who, in his love and jealousy for us, offers himself for our sins to bring us to God. He stands among us to purify us. He gazes on us with his fiery eyes of love, seeking to bring to himself a holy and beautiful bride. He does this for you. He does this for us. Will you look on his eyes of love and will you let yourself be captured and pierced by them? Jesus is also the lover king. He rules over us in his love. His strength and his sword are not aimed at our destruction. Instead, he wields them for our own flourishing. So if Jesus pierces you, if his word happens to offend you or cut at you in some way, it is only because he's a lover and he loves you enough to offend you. He loves you enough to pain you. It's a shallow love that avoids all offense and that runs from pain. Jesus loves you enough that he is willing to pain you. There's at least one more layer that we haven't considered yet. Remember that when John turns to see the voice, what does he see first? He sees the lampstands. Not the voice. And the lampstands are the church. The church is the bride that upholds and shines the light of Jesus in the world. So people come to know Jesus by knowing his visible body in the world. As we love Jesus by loving the church. You cannot say that you love Jesus, but not be able to say that you also love the church. In fact, the way that you give yourself to Jesus is by giving him yourself to his bride, to the church. If Jesus is the priest, we are his temple, his presence. If Jesus is the sovereign, then we are his co-rulers on the earth. And if Jesus is the groom, then we are his bride, made to reflect his love power. So revelation again is about learning to endure life's pains in the way of Jesus. How do we learn to do this? This vision says that we do it by gazing on him and by being caught in his gaze, by falling before him in our own weakness and having him stretch out his right hand like he did for John and raise us up. This vision is to be looked on heard and read over and over. We soak our imagination in this image of Jesus who stands in our midst with his eyes set on us. And slowly, we feel the strength grow within us to endure. You know, passages like this are difficult for a lot of us because we treat God in like so much of our lives. We want God to give us a list of things that we can do to fix our relationship with him, to fix our lives. Just God, just give me the list. I'll at least try to do it. I'll do my best. 
But instead, Jesus calls us to stop with our lists and behold him. To behold him who is your priest, your sovereign, and your true lover. Who wishes to be near to you, to love you and be loved by you. He is the one who has loved you and will never cease. So could you stop? Just stop and behold him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.